chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And he is. Dear Lord, I thank you for being a faithful creator. And I thank you for revealing yourself to each one of us. And we pray that you would continue to do that today, this morning. And that you would use your servant Paul to open the scripture to us. And that our lives would be changed by what we learn about you and about your character. So use this time for your glory, Lord. Use your servant Paul. Spend him for your glory. Give him clarity of thought, clarity of mind, clarity of speech. And um, give him passion for sharing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So before uh, I actually get into the text, um, after the service, uh, we're just going to retain you for a few minutes uh, because we want to, well, Frank's going to come up and talk to you about the budget. Uh, So this is just a kind of a preview. But he's going to present two budgets to you. You don't approve both of them. You approve one of them. So, um, and on the 11th at our pizza fellowship, that's when you'll, uh, you'll vote for that. Um, so two budgets will be given out to you, one, two. And uh, I'll let Frank say something about that, say more about that uh, right after the service. So please hang on. Don't escape or um, uh, leave and, um, you know, it's not, it's no kind of surprise to you that we're not, the church is not doing that well financially. So, um, we've had to, you know, make some, uh, decisions, uh, that reflect that. But at the same time, I want to say that we're okay with those decisions. So, um, you know, it's not like, Anyone has uh, been dragged into a situation that they are not 
okay with. And uh, that's important for you to know. Anyway, let's go to our text in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter's got a lot to say about suffering, doesn't he? And, uh, you know, it's, it's not an epistle that you would go to to uh, cheer everybody up with. I think we've, uh, we realize that. But at the same time, when Peter talks about suffering, he talks about it as a reality, and he also talks about it in view of uh, what is to come, in view of the kind of world that we do live in. And it's much better to face these issues than to ignore them. The Bible doesn't ignore them. The Bible speaks to them. And we have to recall that even if we're not suffering at this present time, although all of us have, that there are many people in the world who suffer specifically because they're Christians. Okay? So this book would be a very precious book to many people and many Christians in the world because it speaks about suffering, because it tells them about what they're going through and how they are to be as they experience these things in their lives. We have to recall that um, the early Christians, they, uh, they were a big minority in a pagan world, a world that was uh, suffused with paganism, with statues of gods, with temples to gods that you could see everywhere. You know, in some places in the south, in uh, the states, there's a church on every corner, okay? Not many of them are very good churches anymore, but there's a church on every corner, in the ancient world, in the Mediterranean area, there was a temple or some kind of a religious place nearly on every corner. And some of the big cities, these were the biggest, the grandest buildings in the cities. And so you couldn't get away from the fact of pagan worship. It was part and parcel of the worldview and the daily life and the daily thinking of people, and then here's these Christians, and they come around and they talk about this uh, Galilean um, artisan, this carpenter, who was in fact the son of God and who died on the cross, and a Roman cross, which of course in the ancient world that signified that they were the worst kinds of criminals. But no, this one, he died on a cross for the sins of the whole world. And he told us to live in a certain way. And no, we're not going to worship any other God. Even though we can see their um, image in the temple, we're not going to go in there and we're not going to worship with you. And we're not going to enter into any kind of these parties and these uh, activities that have to do with your gods either. And we're going to meet together. They wouldn't tell people generally where they were meeting. They wouldn't invite them to church, folks. Okay? 
They were known for meeting in secret. To avoid what? Persecution. Because their message was very counter-cultural. And it was insulting to many people. And so people, even though there weren't, there were certain periods where there was widespread persecution of Christians led by the emperor, for example under Nero, There was persecution of individual Christians. There were persecutions that broke out here and there just because people didn't like Christians. In the early church, it was common, <coughs> excuse me, to, uh, for all kinds of stories to, to uh, be abroad about what these Christians did in their secret meetings. What were they up to? Okay, they're up to no good. And they, uh, they heard about the Lord's Supper, and they heard about, oh, they drink blood there. And they eat flesh there. They're cannibals. I mean, they didn't bother to find out what this teaching was, that it was symbolic. And so, you can, you know how these things spread, you know how, how these rumors grow. These Christians were, thinking, were thought to be consorting together to maybe sacrifice babies and do all kinds of things. So that was a good reason to hate them. And you couldn't, when you were a Christian, you couldn't say, well, actually that's not what we believe. You couldn't, you, there was no newspaper you could go to. You couldn't stand in the front of a temple and start preaching and say, actually, this is what we believe. The authorities would move you off or you'd be killed or you'd be imprisoned or whatever. And so things were very limited and things were very difficult for Christians in the ancient world. Remember in uh, Acts chapter 10, you had the persecution of the Christians and Peter is arrested. Do you remember that? And he gets out because an angel basically opens the door for him and allows him to get out. But where does he go? The angel leads him to a house where the Christians are secretly meeting. And that was often the way. And so in their daily uh, work and in their conversations, Christians knew about suffering in the early church. And that has happened and continues to happen. Uh, to the present day. We are very, very blessed and fortunate that we're not among their number. And so Peter here in chapter 4 and verse 12 addresses again head on this issue of suffering. Beloved, do not think it a strange, it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't think that because you suffer that that's, you know, God's looking the other way or God's been caught out or the devil's got the upper hand. Don't think in that way. Strange 
fiery trials that come out of nowhere and are the most inconvenient things that you could think of. They come upon the children of God either directly because of persecution or or indirectly because Satan manufactures things like he did with Job and so on and so forth with God's permission. But these things are fiery trials which are sent by God to try our faith. And maybe they catch us out and maybe we're not really prepared for them and our reactions to them, as we saw last week, are not the way that they should be. Our perspective is wrong. And we have to because we, uh, we have to face the persecution and we have to change our thinking about the persecution. We have to find the right perspective, the right mindset. So it's not an odd, it's not a strange thing when suffering and trials come upon a Christian. The Bible has lots to say about that. If we have the right perspective, if we have oriented our thinking in the right way, we don't complain, we don't uh, uh, worry, but rather verse 13 says that we are to rejoice. Now that does take a change in our thinking, doesn't it? In our orientation. And the way that this orientation can be changed is, according to Peter, if we focus on two or three things. The first thing is that we partake in the sufferings of Christ when we suffer. That's a strange thing to say. I mean, we're the ones suffering, aren't we? Christ is up in heaven. How, you know, how can there be any connection there? Well, the connection is that Christ, remember, he suffered. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with, with grief. He was, uh, the victim of all kinds of unfairness and lies and slanders. And because we identify with him, maybe those lies, slanders, that suffering comes upon us too. God, the Father, sees that connection. He sees our faith connection with Christ. And because we are in Christ as believers, then the sufferings that we undergo have value to him. He looks upon them. He counts them. And he also looks upon the way we respond to those sufferings, those trials. Do we respond in faith or does faith elude us because we are just not thinking correctly? Our orientation is not a faith perspective. So that's the first thing. The first reason we can rejoice is because our sufferings are connected to Christ's sufferings. The second one is that, in verse 13, when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You rejoice now in view of 
the exceeding rejoicing that will occur when Christ appears and when things utterly change. When there is a line drawn that no one can erase and that line is drawn across your experience, across the world's experience by Christ himself. Beyond that line is no more suffering. Beyond that line is no more persecution, worry, anxiety, pain. The line is drawn by Christ and that is it. Pain stops there. Persecution and suffering stop at that line, but we cross the line. And so we rejoice when his glory is revealed. I'll uh, come back to that. I said two or three because in verse 14, you can connect this with the second one, but Peter says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed of you for, are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a present tense. It's not that you are glorified right now. That comes later. But because of the identification that we have with Christ, because we have oriented our thinking towards a faith perspective in God, realizing that our sufferings have value and God sees them, then the Spirit of God who is upon us, because he's in us, is a spirit of glory. Now, if he is called a spirit of glory in our present sufferings because of our uh, connection to Christ, it means that in my understanding, the understanding of of, uh, commentators, that glory, in a sense, is being accrued. Glory is being accrued to us because the Spirit of God is going through these trials as we are going through these trials. And the response is glory towards us. You see, we don't go through these difficulties without the Spirit of God. If you're a believer, the Spirit of God goes through the trial with us. Yet, this is where the orientation is so important, we can forget that the Holy Spirit is within us. We can rely on our own steam, our own power, instead of relying on him. We can forget that his word is in front of us. You know, just realizing that God is with us in our difficulties, in our trials, in our anxieties, can change those trials and those anxieties. They can make them meaningful in our lives. They can make the unfairness and the strangeness of the difficulty less strange, less troubling. So that we can, yes, rejoice. That doesn't mean that we're 
we've got smiles on our faces as we're getting whacked by a cane or something like that, yes? It doesn't mean that. It just means that as the apostles who were mistreated in Philippi, once they were thrown into prison, all bruised, they started to sing. They started to rejoice that they were thought, felt worthy to be uh, persecuted for the name of Christ. And so we need to understand that our thinking is all important when it comes to trouble, trial, and persecution. Our thinking, our feelings will let us down, folks. If we're tired, if we're hungry, if we're hurting, if we're bruised and bumped, if we are prone to worry or concern, wondering what's over the horizon, wondering what tomorrow will bring. That will betray us. Our feelings will not sustain us. And so we have to take control by thinking about these things in light of what God says about them, in light of God's presence in them. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Peter calls our attention to the fact that we suffer to God's glory. In the middle of verse 14, after it says that the spirit of glory and God rests upon us, he openly says on their part, the people who are causing the trouble to to us, He's blasphemed. I mean, he's going to be blasphemed. But on our part, he's glorified. You say, how on earth can God be glorified if he's being blasphemed? That's not glorifying God. That's blaspheming God, after all. Well, let the blasphemers be left to God's judgment. We'll come to that. God's not concerned so much about that And what comes out of their mouths, he's concerned about us and what comes out of our mouths. He's concerned about our response in faith to our difficulties. And we can glorify him if we're thinking right. So verse 15 Continues and says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. It's just, this is just a, a group of different sins and wrongdoings that Peter picks out. Don't be doing anything that calls this reproach upon you. If you suffer in that way, well, you, you called for it, haven't you? I mean, You've asked for it, and now you're going through it. So what Peter is saying here is that don't call for suffering and reproach. Live a kind of life that does not call for it, even though it may get it. In which case, your suffering and your persecution is going to be unfair. 
part of the package. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now, verse 15 talks about different things. Murderer, obviously. Thief, obviously. Evildoer, generally. Obviously, those things make sense. But it also talks about someone who meddles in other people's affairs. Being a busybody. Christians, you know, can bring trouble upon themselves just because they just stick their noses in where they're not welcome. And so we need to be wise. We need to be careful about doing things like that. When this, uh, when America was more uh, thought of as a Christian nation, it was common for Christians to open their mouths on social issues and open their mouths on certain things that were going on with neighbors, kids, and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that was a bad thing. But now, those things are seen to be what? You're interfering, you're meddling, you're poking your nose in. And we have to be wise to the situation that we're in, just like the early Christians were. You couldn't go into the temple of Zeus and start preaching Jesus Christ. Okay? Wasn't going to happen, folks. You'd be dead. And people, they wouldn't have thought, oh, what a martyr, what a wonderful, you know, a person. He's standing up for what he believes in. They would think, what an idiot. So we do need to be wise. We need to make sure that our suffering is is unjust, is unfair, but it's done because not because we are causing it to come to ourselves, just because we are standing for the faith. We're standing for Jesus. People know that we're Christians. And whatever they do, whatever they say, either to us or about God, glorifies God in those conditions. If anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, you see? As a Christian. So that what Peter is calling our attention to is the fact that people are giving us a hard time because we're Christians. That means they've got to know that we're Christians. In the uh, ancient world, it was pretty easy to know that you were a Christian, okay? Because Christians, as I said, they wouldn't go into the pagan temples. They wouldn't eat uh, certain meat that is sacrificed to idols in some circumstances, you know, with everybody else worshipping their God. They wouldn't go to these these three-day-long drunken feasts. They would also do such things as look after people. They would go to the dumps and collect babies off the dumps that had been put there. They were known for that. They were known for doing good deeds. They were known for emphasizing 
purity of life. Of course, you know, they were suspected. There's something, there's something going on there, okay? I mean, many people thought, oh, yeah, that, that's the way that you are portraying yourself, but we know that you're really wicked inside. But they were known for many of these things. And by and by, through that, those witnesses, through their understanding of the true God, people were persuaded. Of course, the Holy Spirit was doing the work internally. But the way wasn't easy, and the way isn't easy today. But it's important that we know that if we suffer as a Christian, then we're glorifying God. Okay? God is being glorified. Can we think about ways that that God could be glorified when we're suffering unjustly? It's like, well, I'm not being glorified. I mean, I don't feel that, that great about this. How is God being glorified when he's being blasphemed? How is God being glorified by the church being persecuted? Surely the opposite should be true. That's what we're told in many churches today. Certainly not by everybody, but there's a, there is a wide swathe of, of preaching and teaching that says that God is glorified when we're doing well. Money in the bank, healthy, you know, everyone loves us. That's the idea. And we might think, yeah, that, that, God is glorified and therefore he's happy with us and therefore we're getting all these blessings. But what about when all those blessings, quote-unquote, disappear, when they vanish completely? How then is God glorified in our trials and in our sufferings? Because we are standing up in the same way Jesus did for God in his world. This is God's world. He created it. He created us. And most people ignore that fact. Most people pay no attention to that fact. And they would, in this context, worship other gods, in fact. Give the glory to other gods. We're giving glory to the true God. And if we have to suffer for it, fair enough. That's the way it is. Jesus himself who created the world and who saved the world. He had to suffer in the the same way. Glorifying God can look very different than we think it looks. It can be people in a prison cell who are there because they will not compromise their faith. It can be people who are tortured for Christ. It could be people who have to suffer all kinds of trouble, pain for the name of Christ. They glorify God and God will reward them. And so... 
Verse 16 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. We might feel ashamed because everybody's telling us that that, uh, we should be ashamed. Our circumstances tell us we should be ashamed. So we've got to, you see, take hold of what is going on and get the right perspective on what is happening and realize God is pleased with what we're doing, with our witness. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You see, you can't just uh, decide that you're going to languish in this cell and do nothing or you're going to shut up and not do anything. You have to do good. Your attitude, which is that I'm here for uh, a reason or I'm in going through this trouble for a reason, that reason is connected to who I am in Christ, it's got to be so real that we continue to do good to people. People who are blaspheming our God. People who are hating us. We must have this view. We do good because Christ continued to do good. God is good and does good. And therefore, if we are the people of God, we will do good. And it says that our suffering is for the will, from the will of God anyway. I know that doesn't, that's, that's not what we want to hear. I know that. We want to hear that it's the will of God for us to be healthy, happy, bouncy, and everything else. Okay? But oftentimes that's not the case. Okay? We cannot be tiggers all the time. Sometimes, you know, the trouble and difficulty that God lays upon us will bring us down, bring us low. And our response to this in faith is what God is looking for. And look, commit your souls to him, verse 19, in doing good as to a faithful creator. Isn't that interesting? That he brings in God as a creator, not as a savior. Not as a father but as a creator. And I think this relates back to what I said earlier about the fact that this is God's world and we're persecuted because of our identification with the creator and our understanding of the world and our understanding of who we are is connected vitally to the fact that we understand we're created by God, the world's created by God, God is the creator. And so, as he's the creator, he's also the recreator. The one that makes things and will make things right in every single way. And so we can commit our souls to him. And that faith response glorifies God. 
So we have to orient our thinking in the right way when suffering and trials come. We recognize that we suffer to glorify God. You know, non-Christians suffer too, don't they? But they cannot suffer to glorify God. We can. And then thirdly, in verses 17 and 18, Peter speaks about judgment. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's the church. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So judgment is in store for us, me and you. Now let's be clear on what this judgment is and what it is not. This judgment is not a judgment for your sins. Okay, Your sins were judged in Jesus Christ. A decision was made by God the judge in your favor because you trusted in Christ. You have been justified by faith. You understand that? Yes, that's a legal decision by God. There's no double jeopardy. Okay? You're not going to be tried again for the same offense, which is that you're a sinner. Okay? You're not going to be tried again for that. But there is a judgment for Christians. There is a judgment for our outlook, for our employment of faith, for our obedience. You don't think that somebody who is obedient even to death, say in Africa, Nigeria or somewhere like that, that they're going to be treated by God the same as a materialistic, worldly-minded Christian in the West who's not giving much of a thought to glorifying God, who's trying to press on and get more and more stuff. And that's the big driving force of their life. Well, when the two stand before God, the one who died for their faith is going to be rewarded. The one who built a life around themselves and the things that the world offers, they're not going to be rewarded. They'll be saved, but they're not going to be rewarded. Do you see? Because they didn't suffer for Christ, and therefore the spirit of glory and of God did not rest upon them in that way. Now this is, this is important. Look, I'm the first person to admit and to confess that, you know, the judgment seat of Christ, and that's what it is, the judgment seat of Christ is not going to be an easy time for me. There are many things, things that I've forgotten about, that God will not forget about. Sins that I've not confessed, that because I've not confessed them, They'll be brought up.
But I do take this judgment seriously. And because I take this judgment seriously, even though I'm very imperfect, I can, this can be used to correct me and correct my thinking and correct my course. I do, though, harbor a concern for many Christians and many Christian leaders, too, who don't seem to take this judgment seriously. Who don't seem, they think that they die and they just kind of swan off into heaven to their eternal rewards and they don't have to give an account for their lives. Where'd you get that from? You are a servant of Christ. You've been kept on the earth to serve Him. And a servant must, remember the parables, give an account to the master. And you will. And I will. And so it's a good idea for us, in view of that, to look at our lives, our thinking, our orientation, our our relationships, in light of that coming judgment. Because we will be rewarded or not in accordance with whether we did things for Christ or we didn't. Paul, sorry, Peter, excuse me, Peter, in verse 18, in a quotation says, If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Well, the first part of that is... is, uh, Humbling, isn't it? If the righteous one is scarcely saved. Folks, we're saved. We're secure in Jesus Christ. But don't think it was an easy ride. In fact, the connection that Peter makes here is that there will be suffering for Christ's sake in a Christian's life. And if there isn't, it's because you've smoothed the road over yourself. And you've done it by not identifying with Jesus and with his truth. But what about the ungodly? What about those that blasphemed? What about those that persecuted? Folks, there is a coming day of judgment. You know, I was um, in Nigeria, for example, there are... um, People, Christians, have to face all kinds of persecution. Um, they treat, they, they kill these Christians and then they mistreat the bodies of these Christians after. They steal children, kidnap children. They do all kinds of abominable things. Their judgment will come. And it will be severe. And it won't, and here's the thing, we need to understand this. It won't be momentary. It won't be momentary. We must always understand, and this is part of our context, this is part of our thinking, our persecutors are God's enemies. 
and God will require it of them. And that might call forth a little bit of pity on our on our behalf, yes, on our sorry, on our part. Because it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. What can a person do when they are on the wrong side of God at the judgment? That is not a good place to be. All of you, well, I don't believe in God and I believe in science and I... What good is that going to do? How's that going to sound when the eyes of the Father are burning on you? You're not going to appeal to science anymore because science has been told you God doesn't exist and yet there he is. Now what? And so, in in conclusion here, suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life, but judgment comes at the end, and that judgment can be a good judgment, a good judgment for the Christian who has glorified God by having faith and having the right thinking in their trials and in their persecutions. And it can be an awful thing and will be an awful thing for those who are persecutors. What about those in the middle? <laughs> what about those Christians who have not given a lot of thought to representing Christ in trouble, who have not really had a, an, a mindset of faith and interpreted their lives uh, by faith in Christ, knowing that they're doing the will of God by suffering. There'll be disappointment on God's face, I believe, that he can't reward you because you didn't glorify him. And so, today's message left you all probably thinking, well, there's not much here to ignite the fire, fan the flames. It's a, it's a, a, a text that brings realism to our situation, yes? Because remember, Peter said, there's cause to rejoice. But do we have the right thinking? Do we have the right thinking? If so, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let's think about that as we leave today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that I and everyone else would be sobered by this message and by what Peter says. Persecution will come. We thank you, Lord, that, we, that it hasn't raised its ugly head a lot in America. And, uh, Lord, we don't pray for it. But we do pray for those throughout the world who are persecuted for your name's sake, that your peace and your blessing would be upon them and your deliverance also. And we pray for ourselves that when we are touched by these trials and these difficulties that we are not caught out, Lord, because we've been thinking in a worldly way, but we realize that this has been brought upon us by you and that we reorient our thinking towards that as to a faithful creator. In Christ's name.